feel like I need to bring something God spoke to me, and, and I, I would love it if he could, um, you know, if he could read me your mail. That would be awesome. Then I could just come up here, and I could tell you how it is and how it should be. That's never what happens. He's always reading mine. And so here's what's going to happen. I'm going to tell you what he's speaking to me because uh, it's for me. Uh, if, it's, if it's for you, that's great. But I'm just going to tell you what he's speaking to me because I'm confident that it's from him because he's been reading my mail. Uh, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad we serve a God that cares about us as individuals? That it's not just a, uh, it's not just a big group thing. It's, it's me as an individual. It's you as an individual. He sees you where you are. He knows your name. He knows my name. That's awesome. That is awesome. I'm so thankful. Last time, last time I uh, uh, spoke to you, I shared the two mottos that often define my work ethic. Do you remember those? They're not good mottos. The first, the first is that, that defines my work ethic is work smarter, not harder. Uh, I don't know. I don't know, Roger. I don't know how you do it, man. I don't know how you do it. That's hard work. That's hard work. Huh? <laughs> well, yeah, no, you're getting smarter now. That's true. That's true. You're getting smarter now, Yvonne, unfortunately. <laughs> Whew. Man. Uh, but that's right. You are working smarter now. You got it figured out. Uh, so then the second one, the second one that, and it, and it really developed, it really solidified back in my days in architecture school, uh, uh, says this. It says, if you wait until the last minute, it only takes a minute to do. If you wait until the last minute, it only takes a minute to do. Now, some, some of you might say that second motto is evidence of procrastination. Procrastination. But I don't like that word. I don't like that word. That's an ugly word. That's an ugly word. I don't consider myself a procrastinator. See, I think of myself deadline-oriented. Deadline-oriented. That's me. That's how I live my life. Deadline. Okay, but when does it have to be done? I'm deadline-oriented. Yeah, 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 but there's when, when. Yeah, I get it. You want me to work on this, but when's it got to be done? Deadline-oriented. I'm not procrastinating. I'm just really focused on the deadline. Really focused. It just so happens... Uh, fortunately, I think, maybe, that I work in a very deadline-oriented profession, right? So at my work, at my work, we almost exclusively design school buildings, okay? And so in all my years of working there, I've been very fortunate, uh, I've been very fortunate to work on many brand new multi-million dollar school buildings. That's cool. That's cool. But listen, we take our time designing those projects because they're I mean that's multi-million dollars right there are so many questions that need to be asked and there's so many questions that need to be answered before we can complete the design and so we take our time we take our time a new new school building a new school building will take anywhere from nine to twelve months to design if you include all the reviews that have to happen along the way okay you get a you get part of it done, you go get it reviewed. You get, you get, you know, you get it a little further, you go get it reviewed. If you include all that, it takes not anywhere from nine to twelve months to design. So I work on one project for nine months or more. That's a long.
long time. There's probably some small projects that are sprinkled in there with that main one. But one project dominates my workload for almost a year. One project, okay? And at the end of that time, whew, at the end of that time, it all comes to a close. And everything, everything we need to communicate to a contractor, everything we need to communicate to those builders needs to be in those documents that we've created. The deadline approaches. That's where I'm at right now. Right now at work. The deadline is approaching. I'm in, I'm in the final month of the project that I've been working on for most of this last year. I'm in the final month. It's coming to an end. Deadline oriented. And when I get to this point, when I get to this point, everything about the way I work changes. There's this there's this incredible sense of urgency that comes up inside of me. I'm going to work and I'm creating to-do lists and I'm, and I'm reviewing all the stuff that's been drawn and I'm, and I'm reaching out to my team and I'm figuring things out with my team members and I'm, and I'm making sure that every loose end has been tied up in a nice little bow because the deadline is coming. And because I'm deadline-oriented, I shift into an entirely different gear as the deadline approaches. Entirely different gear. This phenomenon does not just happen in my, in, in, in relation to my career. Uh, uh, let me give you an example. For the second year in a row, for the second year in a row, our son Elijah has gone down to Dale Hollow Lake to go water skiing and tubing with friends for the second year in a row. Our son Elijah has some really great friends. And then he's got some real goobers. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. They are great kids. I love them all. But I wouldn't trust some of them to cat sit for us. And cats are pretty self-sufficient, right? Goobers. Needless to say, Elijah's friendcation, right, is really good for my prayer life. It's really good. Well, you're going to be on a boat with those kids? Who's driving? How you getting there? Are there life jackets? Oh, Lord, give them wisdom, right? Give them all wisdom. Have you ever noticed? Have you ever noticed that the larger a group of teenagers becomes, the dumber they all get? Now, that's not me looking at groups of teenagers. That's me seeing my, my teenage years, right? And when there's two or three of us gathered, we're okay. But you get about 15, 20, we're stupid. We do stupid stuff. Yeah, the more there are, the stupider they get. My prayer life has definitely shifted into another gear this week. Shifted into another gear. You ever been there? You ever been there? Maybe, maybe your loved ones are in some kind of precarious position, and suddenly, suddenly prayer becomes a much higher priority, almost like their lives depend on it, right? On, uh, we're going to go to Exodus chapter 17. On, on their journey through the wilderness, Moses led the Israelites to a place called Rephidim. 
The word, the word Rephidim actually means rest or stay. So, so Rephidim, by its very name, was a place of rest. So Moses leads these people. After crossing the Red Sea, after going through the wilderness, uh, uh, coming to different places, he finally comes to this place of rest called Rephidim. But Rephidim was not to be a place of rest for the Israelites. We, we pick it up in Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 8, where it says, While the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. And so Moses commanded Joshua, I want you to choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. And tomorrow, I will stand at the top of the hill holding the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded, and he fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. And as long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he, he dropped his hand, Amalekites gained the advantage. And Moses' arms soon became so tired, he could no longer hold them up. So Aaron and the Hur, they found a stone for him to sit on, and they stood on each side of Moses, holding up his hands. So his hands held steady until sunset. And as a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. I love this story. I like, I, 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 I like what's going on there. I love, I love the, this is, uh, this is the first time the Israelites ha have really had to battle someone on their journey to the promised land, right? This is, this is, uh, uh, and, and so, and so here they are uh, after crossing the Red Sea, after the, seeing the miracles of God, they, they're under attack. And Moses tells him, he says, he says, go out and fight them, and, and I'll, I'll be up on the hill. I'll be up on the hill holding up my staff. I, I, I read a lot of Bible commentaries regarding these verses. And they all seem to agree that Moses was praying at the top of that hill. I don't know. I don't know. The, the Bible doesn't say what he was doing up there behold, be, be, beyond holding up the staff of God. But those guys that write those commentaries, I'm pretty sure they're way smarter than I am. So let's say he was praying. It seems reasonable. His people are in danger. He's, he's an 80-plus year old. Moses was in no condition to fight, so he did what he could do, where he was at, with what he had, right? He did, he did everything he could do like their lives depended on it, right? Right? So as I was praying for my son this week and those other kids, I felt the following conviction come over me. Why now? Do you think danger only exists away from home? Is prayer only necessary under special circumstances? I felt in my spirit, those kids are in a battle every single week of their lives. 
but you only feel the need to pray for them when they're away. Prayer isn't just about talking to God, is it? Prayer's also listening. But sometimes we may not enjoy what God has to say. Not. I have always struggled to make time for regular intercessory prayer. Always. You know what intercessory prayer is, right? Intercessory prayer is the powerful act of praying for the needs of others. Yeah. I know that we have some amazing prayer warriors in this place. Am I right? We have got some amazing prayer warriors in this place. That is awesome. I am so thankful. I am so thankful for your obedience to God. Intercessory. But realize, intercessory prayer isn't just for the others that we pray for. It's not just for them. Oh, it's for them. But it's not just for them. Without, without intercessory prayer in our lives, it is way too easy to look around at the events that are happening all around us through our natural eyes rather than our spiritual eyes. God, I want to I see things through your eyes. God, I, I want to see the struggle in my kids' lives, not just as struggles, but as part of your grand scheme. God, I want to... I want to understand the challenges that my wife is facing. Even if, even if I'm part of that challenge, God, I want to understand that. God, God, I want to feel genuine empathy for all those people around me who are hurting. Genuine empathy. Regular intercessory prayer does that. Does that. It changes us. It changes us. It opens our spiritual eyes Wide to unlock what is really going on in the world around us. What's really going on in the world around us. Now, I have no doubt. I have no doubt that Moses was praying up there on top of that hill. No doubt. Because if I were watching my people in battle, I would certainly be praying. But going up to the top of a hill isn't really how Jesus told us to pray. In, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, Jesus told his disciples, he said, but when you pray, he said, go, by, go away by yourself. He said, he said, shut the door behind you and pray to your father in private. Then your father, who sees everything, will reward you. While I believe Moses was praying, I don't think he went up on top of that hill to pray. That wasn't the reason he went up on top of the hill. Moses said that he was going on top of that hill to raise the staff of God. He went up there to raise that staff of God in a very prominent spot. He stood on top of that hill and he raised that staff in a location where every one of those fighting the battle could see him. He stood there and he raised that staff. So they all could see him and the staff he was raising. Listen, the people that surround us absolutely need us to pray for them. Absolutely. Whether they admit it or not, they need us to pray. But the people that surround us 
they also need to see us. They need to see us. They need to know that we're there. They need to see us standing strong. They need to see us being real. They need to see us. They even need to see us struggling. And they need to see us overcoming those struggles. Jesus told us. He told us in in Matthew chapter 5, he told us to let them see us. He said this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, he said, You are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. Jesus said no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, the lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. Everyone can see it. In the same way, Jesus said, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. That's what Moses was doing up there. That's why he went to the hilltop. It wasn't just to pray. It's because he needed to be seen. Moses was shining brightly for all to see. He didn't need to go up a hill to pray, but he needed to get up there if they were going to see him during the battle. We have got to find that quiet place where we can be alone with God. And we have got to pray for the people that surround us. They need our prayers. We have got to pray for the people that surround us like their lives depend on it. We have got to because their lives just might depend on it. However, we cannot leave it We cannot leave that concern. We cannot leave that care. We cannot leave that love in our prayer closet. We cannot leave it all in that quiet place. God has called us to walk out of that place empowered and filled with boldness. God says you are like a city set on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. Can they see you? We talked on uh, we talked on Wednesday night with the uh, with the teens about about being invisible, right? And how sometimes we feel invisible. Sometimes visitors to church feel invisible. We need to see them. But in addition to seeing them and knowing, you know, so that they know they're seen, we need to be seen. We need to be seen. Can they see you? Can they see you? In the midst of their battles, can they see you? In the midst of their darkness, are you shining brightly? Not because you're perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. We don't shine because we're perfect. We're not perfect. But in the midst of their darkness, are you shining brightly? Because you're overcoming. Overcoming. That's present tense. We are in the process of overcoming. Are you shining brightly? Or or have we allowed our light to be hidden? Have we allowed our light to be shaded by fear? Our light to be shaded by doubt? Our light to be shaded by shame? 
maybe allowed our light to be shaded by a desire just to get along with everyone? Have we allowed our light to be shaded? The enemy will tell you that you don't deserve to be on that hilltop. You know what? The enemy's right. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve to be on that hilltop. That's why when the world sees my good deeds shining, God gets all the glory. Because apart from him, I can't do nothing. God gets all the glory because God alone deserves all the glory. So Moses told Joshua, he said, he said I will stand at the top of that hill holding the staff of God in my hand. You know, when Moses first encountered God on the backside of the desert, that staff of God is just the shepherd's staff. It was just the staff. Then God turned it into a snake. And then he turned it back to a, snake, uh, a staff. And ever since then, it was the staff of God. When we take what we have in our hand and we give it to God, and he does something amazing with it, then it no longer becomes ours, it becomes his. Moses held the staff of God. He held the staff of God. Actually, I found a website that listed all the miracles that, that uh, Moses was uh, involved with, associated with. And of the 22 that they listed, I counted, and the staff of God was actually involved in eight of them. In addition to the snake, the, the staff struck the river and it became blood. Uh, uh, the staff struck the dust and it released the lice. The, the, uh, the staff was held out over the sea and the sea parted. The staff struck the rock and water for all the Israelites flowed from that rock the staff of God the staff of God and those people fighting in that battle saw what the staff of God in Moses' hand did they saw what God did through the staff in Moses' hand included included in this list of miracles was also this Israelite victory over the Amalekites but I really question if this victory was actually a miracle of God. Because as I read through scripture about all those other things, there's a pattern. There's a pattern. Here's how that pattern goes. Very distinct pattern. God told Moses what to do. Then Moses did it. And then the miracle happened. Very distinct pattern. I guess it's possible in this case that God instructed Moses to stand on that hilltop. But we don't see those instructions recorded in the Bible. Whereas every other miracle included that documentation. The Bible clearly records that when the staff was raised, the Israelites were winning. But when the staff was lowered, the Israelites were, were losing. The, the Amalekites were winning. Very clearly says that. I, I believe... I believe that Moses was correct in his assessment when he said those fighting in the battle, if they see me with the staff held high, they would be victorious. But this does not necessarily mean the victory was a supernatural work of the Lord. It doesn't necessarily mean the victory was a miracle. Listen to this. In, in, in Mark chapter 16, verse 17, Jesus told his disciples after his resurrection He said, these miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. He said, they will cast out demons in my name. 
and they will speak in new languages. They will be able to handle snakes with safety, and if they drink anything poisonous, it won't, won't hurt them. They will be able to place their hands on the sick, and they will be healed. These miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. See, I wonder sometimes why these signs don't accompany us. Am I maybe, am I maybe a bit like Peter? Short on faith when it comes to the supernatural? Perhaps. Am I, uh, am I unprepared for the almost certain change I would experience in my life? Most definitely. Listen, I would love to see God do a miraculous work through you. That's not the right attitude to have. But I sure would love to see God if God did that through you. But I think God understands that I'm not ready for that in my own life. The miraculous. God did many amazing, miraculous things through his servant Moses. But I don't think the victory at Rephidim was one of them because it didn't follow the pattern. Instead, that elevated staff of God was a reminder to all those warriors of whose side they were fighting on. That elevated staff was a reminder to all those warriors of what God had done for them in the past. That staff held high was a testimony to the power and the goodness of God. Moses stood up in front of everyone and he shared his testimony of what the almighty God of the Israelites had done in his life. Isn't that what we're called to do? Isn't, isn't that how we let our light so shine before men? In fact, uh, uh, according to, to Revelations, isn't that how we overcome? Revelations 12, uh, verse 11, the first part of that verse says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Isn't that how we overcome? By our testimony. I've never seen God do a supernatural work through my hand. But I've seen him do a supernatural work in my heart. Right? I've seen him do a supernatural work inside of me. They may not see God do the miraculous through me. But the people that surround me need to hear about what he has done in me. In Moses wasn't performing a miracle up on top of the mountain by holding up the staff, but 
Moses was reminding them of all the miraculous things God had done in the past. And his testimony was enough to encourage them on in their battle. His testimony of God's goodness was enough to drive them forward. The people that are closest to me have probably already heard about what God's done in my life, but sometimes, often, I need to remind them of the things God's done in my life as well. This is how, this is how we overcome the enemy. I chalk up my procrastination to being deadline-oriented. I do that because Why change when you can just justify your own actions, right? There's a good chance in the, in the coming weeks, there's a good chance that I'm going to go into work some evenings. It's not overtime. I'm not getting paid time and a half for that. I'm not getting paid at all for that. I'm going into work in the evenings because the deadline's approaching. That's the, that's the price. That's the price I pay for procrastinating. I don't really mind it, though. Like, that's just, that's just how I'm wired. I don't mind it. If there's a deadline, I got no problem going in there and getting stuff done. It's no big deal. And I get to use it. Here's the big deal. Here's the big deal. Each and every person I come in contact with has a deadline as well. Each and every person that surrounds me in my life, each and every person that God has placed around me in my life has a deadline as well. I'm not necessarily talking about their lives ending. Maybe, maybe, but that's not necessarily what I'm talking about. I'm talking about there's a deadline that exists where my opportunity to impact their life will end. Maybe that's because they leave this planet. But maybe, maybe not. Maybe they just move away. Maybe, maybe we just grow apart. Maybe, maybe they get a new job and and suddenly they're they're gone from my life. The big deal is that I don't know the date of any of those deadlines. At work, I put, I put all those deadlines into my calendar so I can see them all lined up in a row, and I know exactly where to focus my attention. But I don't know the dates for the people that surround me, with people we never know when it's coming. But if we really think about it, we know it's coming. Was the last time I talked to that person the last time I'll ever talk to them? I don't know. I don't know. There's a little girl, little girl, and, and, and sometimes her brother and her older sister, sometimes they, they come on the church van on Wednesday nights. And, uh, and a couple of weeks ago, she got into the van. 
and she said, well, we won't be here after June. We're moving to Indiana. For years, I'm telling you, for years, we've poured into those kids' lives, right? She let me know when the deadline was. And then the very next week, they didn't get on the church van. I wanted to knock on that door. I'm hopeful. I may have to knock on the door this next week if they don't, if they're not standing outside. Because I don't, I don't want that to be the last time. She gave me a hint, though. The other people in my life, I don't know. The other people, I don't know when the last time, if the last time was the last time. I don't know, and not knowing is a huge deal. I tend to assume, in my life, I tend to assume that the way things are is the way things will always be. I tend to assume that, even though, even though that hasn't proven itself to be true in my past. It's definitely an incorrect assumption. See, over this last week, I'm pretty sure that God's trying to adjust my calendar, my internal calendar. What's missing in my prayer life is a sense of urgency. What's missing in my, in my conversation with people is a sense of urgency. I get this nervous energy. Every time a deadline approaches, I get this nervous energy that drives me forward. When there's no deadline, I coast. I coast. I'm on. I'm on autopilot. I'm still moving forward. But there's no real drive. What God showed me this week is I've been on autopilot for a really long time. While so many in the world around me are in the battle of their lives. Maybe this only applies to me. And that's fine. I'm just sharing what God shared with me. Maybe it just applies to me, but I don't want to coast anymore. I don't want to coast anymore. I want to wake up each morning with that nervous energy that says, I've got to get something accomplished today. I want to wake up every morning with that nervous energy. Or maybe maybe it, speaks, maybe it speaks through me like it spoke through Jesus when his parents found him at 12 years old. And he said, didn't you know? I must be about my father's business. Must. Must means that it's mandatory. It means that the action is required. I must be about my father's. I want to wake up with that nervous energy every morning that says, I got to do something today. I got to make an impact today. I got to make a difference today because I don't know when the deadline is approaching. I got to make a difference. So from now on, I want to wake up every morning and say, I've got a deadline today. I've got a deadline today to pray like their lives depend on it. Whose lives? I don't know. And because I don't know, that should create a sense of urgency in me like no other. I've got a deadline of the day to stand before people and shine in the midst of their darkness like their lives depend on it. Because they just might 
they just might. I've got a deadline that's approaching. My question to you is, do you have a deadline that's approaching? They're going to sing this song, and while they sing this song, I just ask that, you know, that, that you just listen to what God's saying to you, that you just hear what God's saying to you. I just pray that God would put an urgency inside of each and every one of us. 